What should we do when things don't make sense in our lives? As Christians, what should we do when our situation seems at odds with the promises of God? In the Bible, we read over and over that God promises to provide for us and protect us, and yet somehow we still face hard times in our lives. God says that he will bless the righteous and he'll punish the wicked, yet sometimes it seems like evil people face no consequences at all. What's the deal with that? How do we make sense of it? And are we even allowed to ask these kinds of questions as Christians? Thankfully, we're not the first people to find ourselves asking these kinds of questions. People in the Bible also wrestled with the apparent contradiction between God's promises and the state of the world around them. It's an age-old question. And so today I want to present to you one person in the Bible who really wrestled with this question. But before we get into that, let's pray. God, thank you for bringing us here together this morning to hear your word for us. Open our hearts and our minds to receive it. Lord, if there's anyone listening today, either in person or online or after the fact, who is struggling to make sense of their situation, I pray that you would be with them and help them see the ways that you are working. Reveal to us your perspective, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this month we're doing a series on the minor prophets. There are 12 smaller books near the end of the Old Testament. And the minor prophets aren't often talked about from the pulpit. And I think that leads a lot of Christians to not be very familiar with them. So my goal with this series is to introduce to you some of the minor prophets that you might not know very well. Because even though they're not preached on very often, the minor prophets still have a lot to teach us. Even though their prophecies were first given to people who lived thousands of years ago, a lot of what they had to say still applies today. This week we'll be looking at the book of Habakkuk, which is a bit different than the other minor prophets that are found in the Bible. But like I mentioned last week, you can't really understand a prophet until you understand the situation they are prophesying into. So as a quick refresher for people who weren't here last week, and I promise again it'll be short, here's a quick history lesson. Our story starts with God saving his people from slavery in Egypt. If you've seen the, the animated movie, The Prince of Egypt, or the old live-action movie, The Ten Commandments, those are loose retellings of that story. And after God saves the people from Egypt, he makes a covenant with them, which is kind of like a contract or a two-way promise. And with the covenant established, God brings the people into the promised land and establishes the nation of Israel. Unfortunately, the people were not very good at upholding their end of the covenant. They worshipped other gods, and they oppressed and exploited each other, and the kingdom even splits in two. The northern kingdom kept the name Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. Now last week I talked about the prophet Amos, who prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel. 
And he warned the rich and the powerful that just as they had plundered from the poor, so too would they be plundered from. And 40 years later, that's exactly what happened. The kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrian Empire, and the people were carted off into exile. But the southern kingdom of Judah survived. They weren't conquered by the Assyrians. And they even continued on for another 150 years. And in that time, things were starting to change on the world stage. The Assyrian Empire that had once conquered the northern kingdom was in decline. There had been revolts and civil wars that left the country unstable. And at the same time, a new power was rising in the region, the Babylonians. And though the Babylonians were still small, they were starting to expand and take land from the Assyrians. Things on the world stage were changing. So it's into this context that the book of Habakkuk is written. And the book of Habakkuk is unique among the minor prophets. We don't actually have any record of Habakkuk prophesying to the people. Now, that's not to say that he didn't do that. He very well might have. But if he did, then it wasn't written down. What we have instead in the book of Habakkuk is a conversation between Habakkuk and God. Where most prophets bring the word of the Lord to the people, Habakkuk brings the concerns of the people before God. Now, unlike the book of Amos, which we looked at last week, the book of Habakkuk is all one continuous story. There aren't self-contained chunks that I can pull out and use as an example of the concerns of the prophet. So today, instead, I'm going to walk through the whole book of Habakkuk, but not the whole thing. I'm not going to stand here and just read the entire book. That would be boring and it would take a long time. Instead, I'm going to use selections pulled from across the whole book in order to take you through the storyline. So let's get started. So the book of Habakkuk begins with Habakkuk's first question to God. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. The law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. The kingdom of Judah was facing the same kinds of problems the kingdom of Israel had a century earlier. The rich and the powerful were using their money and power to control the courts. The poor and the powerless could not get justice for the wrongs committed against them because the rich would bribe judges and intimidate witnesses. But where Amos had confronted the people with their injustices, Habakkuk turns to God and says, hey, why do you let these things happen in the first place? Habakkuk is writing 150 years after Amos, but it's not as if these issues just started popping up in Habakkuk's time. The kingdom of Judah wasn't much better than the kingdom of Israel, and yet God seemed to be taking his sweet time punishing Judah. And so Habakkuk asks God, why? Why were the injustices of the Judeans allowed to continue? Well, God gives Habakkuk an answer, though it's not an answer that Habakkuk is going to like very much. 
Look at the nations and watch, and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people, who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. So God tells Habakkuk that he's going to raise up the Babylonians. Now at this point in history, the Assyrians were in decline, and the star of Babylon was beginning to rise. But the Assyrians were still the top dog in the region, undisputed. Nobody would have expected that in a few short years after this was written, the Babylonians would storm the Assyrian capital and completely take over the region. That's why God says he's going to do something in Habakkuk's day that Habakkuk wouldn't believe. God is going to empower the Babylonians to do the unthinkable and unseat the Assyrian Empire. And once the Babylonians were in control of the region, they would sweep through Judah and carry the people off into exile, and that would be God's punishment on the Judeans. Now Habakkuk doesn't like that answer very much. This is what he has to say. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, you've appointed them to execute judgment, and you, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? This is Habakkuk's objection to God. Look, the Judeans, they're bad, but the Babylonians, they're way worse. How can a good God use a more wicked nation to punish a less wicked one? Though the Babylonian Empire was still small by this point in history, their reputation for brutality and violence was well known. The Babylonian war machine was all-consuming. Life was bad in the kingdom of Judah, yes, but it would be even worse under the Babylonians. It seemed like God was replacing a bad situation with a worse one. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story. God has an answer for Habakkuk. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the people. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered the nations, the people who are left will plunder you. Though God will use the Babylonians for now, they will also face his judgment. 150 years prior, God had told the people of Israel through the prophet Amos that just as they had stolen from the poor, so too would their riches be stolen from them. Now God says the same thing to the Babylonians. They will face the same judgment. Just as they had plundered the nations, so too would the nations plunder them. Though God would use the Babylonians for a time, he would ultimately judge them, just as he had used and judged the Assyrians before them. 
God does not leave the guilty unpunished. This answer, it seems, satisfies Habakkuk because the rest of the book is dedicated to a hymn of praise that Habakkuk sings to God. It's quite long, so I won't read the whole things, but I think the closing verses here really capture the essence of this hymn. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet... I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and there are no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. In the end, Habakkuk has learned to wait and trust in God, who works out all things for good. Even when everything goes wrong, in times of famine or in times of war, Habakkuk will choose trust and joy in the faithful promises of God. So what are our takeaways from this? Well, I think the book of Habakkuk shows us that it's okay to question God when things don't make sense. As Christians, sometimes we think that we can't question God or that questioning God would show that we have weak faith. But I think the book of Habakkuk shows us that this is not the case. If anything, Habakkuk's questions come from a place of strong faith. He does believe in the holiness and justice of God. And because he believes in those things, the situation doesn't make sense. If he believed that God was cruel or if he didn't believe in God at all, he wouldn't have had a reason to ask the questions in the first place. Habakkuk is asking these questions because he can't reconcile what he knows to be true about God with the situation around him. There's another Bible character who serves as a great example of this. Job. Job also couldn't reconcile his belief in God with the situation he found himself in. He had lost all his possession, his children had been murdered, he was afflicted with a terrible sickness. Job had every reason to doubt the goodness of God. And most of the book is dedicated to his questions. But in the middle of the book of Job, we also get this famous passage. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. How my heart yearns within me. In the midst of a lot of questioning and a lot of pain, Job expresses this beautiful and powerful hope in the faithfulness of God. It is because Job believes in God so strongly that he has this burning need to understand how the good God that he believes in could allow these things to come to pass. These kinds of questions come from a place of strong faith. When you can't square away your situation with the goodness of God, it's good to bring those questions before him. But the book of Habakkuk doesn't just leave us there. It doesn't just leave us with questions. 
Because God also offers an answer. The book of Habakkuk tells us that God works all things for good, but he doesn't always do it when or how we would expect. God's methods and his timings aren't always the way that we would do things if we were in charge. When Habakkuk asked God to judge the kingdom of Judah, he certainly didn't expect God to do it by raising up the Babylonians, who were more wicked than the nation God was asking them to punish. And then once God had raised up the Babylonians, he waited 70 years before bringing judgment upon them using the Persians. But it is also true that God did not leave the Judeans or the Babylonians unpunished. He did bring justice, just in a way and with a time that Habakkuk didn't expect. God doesn't often work when or how we expect him to, but he does work all things for good. In the same way that Habakkuk ends the book in a place of faith and trust in the promises of God, so too can we hope for a future in which everything will be set right. At the end of all things, God promises that he will return and dwell with his people, and there will be no more evil. The book of Revelation, which describes the end of all things, puts it this way. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Though evil and sickness and pain exist for now, God ultimately works all things towards good. There will come a day when the only thing that remains is love. And when we encounter sickness and evil and pain in this life, like Habakkuk, we can have hope and trust in the faithful promises of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your willingness to work with us, for putting up with all our uncertainties, our questions, our doubts, and our fears. Help us feel comfortable bringing our questions to you. Lord, thank you for being a God who works all things for good. I pray that as we encounter hard times in our lives, you would help us have faith and hope in your promises. It can be hard for us to see things from your perspective, so give us eyes to see and minds to understand. Thank you for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.